Hey everybody, we are Francis, Martin, and Robert, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Welcome back to Snakes and Otters. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis in the captain's chair this time. We're going to finish out our four-part series on Rome. Uh, we've spent the last three episodes of our history episodes on Rome. Uh, we've kind of chronologically built the different eras on it. We're wanting to tie it all together, to put a nice little bow on it this time here. We've talked a lot about the history and the personalities and the things that happened and many of the movements. This is going to be the episode that's kind of like, yeah, so, why do we care? Why should Rome matter to us? I mean, besides being history nerds. That's exactly right. Yeah, because it is bigger than that. It is. It is much more, it than, is. It is much more than just the history itself. <clears throat> we owe so much to Rome. So what you're, what you're saying is we're going to actually answer the question, what did the Romans ever do for us? Oh, yes. <laughs> and we're going to steal that right from Monty Python's Life of Brian. Actually, that whole scene that they do is spot on. It, it, it really it's is. It's done tongue-in-cheek, tongue in but it's absolutely correct. They nail it so much. What did the Romans ever do for us? And everything that they pull out is absolutely true. And they are major game-changers on all of that stuff. The aqueduct, you know, broad peace, the whole everything in between. It really is that. Yeah. But we do have a moment, though. Speaking of Monty yes, Python... we have kind of a melancholy little chore we want to do uh, as we record this. Mm -hmm. uh, we have received news that uh, Python alum. member, uh, Python alum, and the director of Life of Brian, Terry Jones, has passed away at age 77. Right, just a couple of days ago. Absolutely, yeah. He, uh, of dementia, God save him. Uh, he mm. hadn't done any uh, public appearances since 2016 because that he was unable to respond. Uh, so sad. It's so sad for such a brilliant mind. It's a, a, So much of what made Monty Python great belong to Terry Jones. Now they all contributed and they are all, you know, that's one of the reasons that it is so great because they had so many great minds with it. But he's the one that actually got them to the cinema. They weren't sure they could make this happen. And he's the one that sold the investors on, yes, we can do this and let's do it. And he directed it. And uh, he was also a historian. Mm -hmm. Believe yes. it or not. Beyond, uh, he, beyond all the Monty Python stuff, he, he really was he a He had several historian. doctorates in, in medieval history in particular. Well, I didn't know about the doctorates. I mean, yes. you know he had done several specials on uh, oh, yeah, he whatever a, cable channel. Uh, it was BBC's where they actually did the original recording, but they ended up on different ones here in the United States. Right. A&E did them, okay. uh, which I think, and it was the History Channel did some. He did one on the Crusades, mm -hmm. on the Barbarians he did, which was a really excellent one. And Rome was one of his big subjects. He was, that whole period... Uh, kind of, he's in many respects kind of our muse for what we're doing here today because he would have really gotten into this. I, I can think of Terry sitting in the chair right here as we're talking about this stuff because he loved this sort of stuff. Uh, how Rome got carried forward <laughs> yeah. into the medieval world and from there into the modern world. That's what we're going to talk about today. So, uh, But before we do that, we need to raise a glass. Yes, to, to Mr. Creosote, to yes. Brian's mother, to all the other, uh, uh, Sir Bedivere. Oh, that's right, Sir Bedivere, that's Sir right. All the other great parts that uh, Terry Jones played and all the joy that he brought to especially the three of us. Yes, and uh, so many other people, too. Yeah. Uh, raise a glass of legacy bourbon to Mr. Jones. Amen. Rest in peace, brother. You've done good. Mm. Legacy. Larceny. Larceny. Larceny, sorry. Larceny. 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 Yes, uh, I was thinking of his legacy. Yeah. Who we were toasting. That's yeah, right. And I, I messed it up myself. But yeah, mm. Larceny bourbon. It's good stuff. 
Uh, oh, yes. Yes, I wanted to do this. I didn't, and Francis is pointing it out to me. You know, he's off the twig. He's kicked the bucket. He's shuffled off this mortal coil, rung down the curtain, and joined the bleeding choir invisible. He's an ex-Terry Jones. Yes, nice. that's, amen. That's the same tribute that John Cleese did when Graham Chapman died. So Right, which was from... Very the, fitting. Yeah, I mean, it was fantastic. So, uh, before we move on to Rome, so... Graham Chapman and, and Terry Jones, are any of the others passed? No, the no. others the others I did are not still think around. So. That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Cleese actually has mentioned that. Two down, four to go. That's, an, that's a quote from, from John Cleese. Uh, I know that sounds kind of cold, but I mean, that's but, the kind of... But that's of John Cleese. That's, 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 right. that's, that's the way the six of them were. That's right, they that's, were. And uh, they, they, they've stayed great friends all through afterwards, which is a, really a, a great testament to just how good they were. When you put them together, you got far more than the sum of them all. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we like Monty Python. Okay. And they like this sort of stuff. They like Rome. I mean, all the stuff, as I said, in that sketch is really, really true. And it's one of those why should we care type yeah. things. And I think I just kind of want to throw it out to you guys. The, as we've mentioned before, the Dark Ages, which we'll call that as the time after the light of Rome goes out until later in the Middle Ages, the higher Middle Ages, when learning starts to come back through monasticism and other things like that. Initially, uh, it's almost barbarism in many respects. And all the leaders that... In the come, West. In, in, the, in West, the West, yes. We're talking in the West only. All of the leaders that rise during that time, and I'm speaking Charlemagne, Clovis, and a few others, are trying to recapture Rome. So I would put them... not Again, because you know I have a problem with the Dark Ages. I know you hated that. I knew... It's just... But I would put someone like Charlemagne, I would not put him as part of the Dark Ages. Because He's that's the, be the beginning of the Holy Roman Empire. That is correct. That's where it came out of that. He's the, the, the learning of the monasticism, that's going on uh, almost throughout this entire time as well. Um, well I think what's what when the light of Rome goes out, uh, it's one of those things you don't know how good you've got it until it's gone. Yeah. Well, you've, you've pointed this out before in that it's, it's that lack of that central authority. Not that the whole world stops. But this this lack of this central directing authority mm -hmm. from the empire, but you're, you're very right. Uh, learning goes on. People are trying to rescue this legacy all through this period we call the Dark Ages. Yeah. It's a lot harder. There's a lot more struggle going on, mm -hmm. and Rome itself, the city. What well, we you know when we think of Rome, we think of the city. Uh, it suffers terribly. Yes. yes. There's a point where the city, uh, you know, during its heyday was a million plus people. Mm -hmm. It goes to a low of something like 10,000 people. And probably most of those guys work for the church. So, I mean, Rome as a city suffers horribly during the dark times. Mm -hmm. uh, yet, what it is, what is so important, does survive, mm -hmm. which I think is such an amazing thing. Yeah. There's so many threads that come forth from there that carry on even today. I mean, the Latin language itself... Uh, and I had two years of Latin in high school, so I get a little bit of this. So much of the English language, this is through that learning that mm -hmm. came through, because mm -hmm. English itself is totally unrelated to Latin. Right. As, uh, it's, 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 it's a Germanic language. It's Germanic. It's barbaric in many ways is what they'd call it. And yet the modern English language has stolen tons. And I mean We are so tons. good at that. <laughs> we are. And so much of the words that we have, the fact that feminine words... In, feminine names in an A, that's Latin. That's the feminine for, you know, filia mm -hmm. means sister. Right, You know, right. anything that ends in an A, 
That's the way the Latin worked. U.S. is male. That's uh, a lot of that has made its way into our language. Today. Yeah, language is really interesting uh, because Latin, even though it's a dead language, it was the language of scholarship mm -hmm. for a thousand years and more beyond the fall of Rome in the West, and you know that is where uh, so much of what Spanish and French is and Portuguese owes to Latin. Uh, so Latin influenced the whatever the Franks were speaking, whatever the Spaniards were speaking. All the Romance languages. So, yes, all the Romance languages. Oh, so the much. Italian. They are basically based Italian. in Latin. That's correct. Yes. Which was its own, it was the language of learning for for a thousand years after that. And it was also the only common language yes. uh, that they would that they Oddly could enough, use. Oddly enough, the lingua franca was, I, I was, was not French. It was I Latin. was almost going to say that, but you beat me to it. You're exactly right. That It was, it, it, that, it was the language of commerce. Exactly. In fact, and, and this is reaching back to Thomas More a little bit, he was fluent in Latin and English. In fact, all of his correspondence was usually in Latin. Right. Because, again, things that are official, mm -hmm. things that are done, you know, in his position, there would have been a lot of interaction with the church. All of that's going to be that's in correct. Latin. Uh, anything that is academic is going to be in Latin. There's also going to be some Greek. He probably knew Greek as well. He I did. Would imagine. He did. Uh, but most, most, and you see, Everybody knew Latin. It was learned. Yes. There was a common agreement on that. That still works. Oops, sorry. We've adapted all that. Just because we don't use Latin too much on its own, it's all there. Well, you're right. It becomes that way to translate information. Mm -hmm. So that then becomes the backbone of all the other things that are still out there that are worth grabbing. These threads of Rome that men like Charlemagne or Theodoric or even Justinian, when he tries to retake the West, that they're grasping for. That's what makes it worth it. And it's that's the backbone of how they communicate those things. So what else besides the language? Again, you talked about Roman law at one point. Oh, when we yeah. So prepping. This is, this uh, is huge. This is amazing. A lot of the huge. concepts uh, of, of our law seep from Roman law. It is, and it, yet it doesn't. Uh, in, uh, the American system of law is based on a competing system, the English common law system. It's a different philosophy. Different philosophy. Girding it. And there's the difference. There is that the English common law that we subscribe to today is about precedent. Everything is about what you've done before, and mm -hmm. that's what's used to, to say what you can and can't do. Roman law, and the Catholic Church still uses this in its canon law, is completely different. It is far more just, I believe, this is me speaking, because it takes the standard of what is good, what is correct, what is the best that we want to try to be. And every case that's brought before it is measured against that, trying to reach that standard. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what's what somebody else did or didn't do. We want to measure what you did versus this and how close did you get and what do we think you should, what should be done about that. In some ways, I think... Uh, especially Americans are going to listen to that and they think, I don't even understand what that means. Uh, because if you think about what that means, uh, in a practical sense, if you and I commit the same act, but with slightly different circumstances, mm -hmm. we could have different penalties laid on us for the same thing because of that. And you can still get that uh, in, in the current sure. court. You know, like if I you know, run my car into yours uh, and... You're the only person in it, and you know you get a bump in your head. That's one thing. You run your car into somebody else's car, but there's you know a car full of kids in it, and half of them die. That's a much different 
outcome. So uh, there's still some of that, but you know that shooting for the ideal and measuring against that that's a little bit hard to, to codify. I can so there's you, still going to be. I, I just want to get to where there's still similarities. Mm-hmm. Real quick. I can give you an example that illustrates this very clearly. I was going to give the similarities, but go on. Yeah, it's yeah. Stay with me. I, I got this. I know, but I was in the middle of a point. I'm sorry. Uh, under Roman law, you pull up to you pull up at 5 a.m. to a stoplight that's red. You look around, you see nobody's there. You go on. The cop that's sitting next door to you recognizes what you did, what you should do, and doesn't just pull you over. In the English common law, you come up. You do the same thing. The cop that's over there arrests you, gives you a ticket because you broke the law. The only problem I have with that is that it sounds like you're saying the guy actually stops at the light and goes on before it turns. Mm-hmm. I've been to Rome. They don't even stop. Because no, <laughs> so one of the ways that you can uh, that we I like to talk about Roman law about setting the ideal and you know you're going to fall short mm-hmm. and that's okay because the whole thing is in the, in the attempt. But the greatest example of Roman law at work really is the traffic laws in Rome. Because when we were over there a couple of years ago for that trip, which was phenomenal, everybody should go to Rome if they possibly can, you know, you're driving down a a broad lane, which is generally not in the the heart of the city because, you know, all those buildings are very close together because of the, you know, the age of the city. But you're, you're driving down either the express, not so much the expressway, but on the surface streets. And there are, lines just like there are in the u.s and there's like three lanes that are painted but there's five columns of cars at least because they don't pay any attention to that stuff it's whatever you can get and you know they're and the cops are doing the same thing if they're even around i think even the cops are afraid to drive in rome <laughs> but you know so it's very much that 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 kind of a thing where you know it doesn't really matter what what difference does it make there's a uh, there's a level of freedom that comes with that, uh, that is not there otherwise. I think uh, you can. I think there's a higher level of responsibility as that's well. That's exactly yeah, right. Is it with, freedom or is it license? No, I, I think it, it, it's freedom because it's freedom the responsibility because the responsibility that goes with it's exactly right. You are you are expected to make the best decision for yourself, mm-hmm. and you are not and you are allowed the freedom to make that decision. In this case, uh, it's far less restrictive. Than our, now, than our laws. Now, to be sure, you know, I, I always like to talk about how, uh, to explain the difference, you know, using the, the, the Roman traffic laws, but also Roman law as a philosophical uh, approach is a thou shalt. Yes. Whereas English law, which is what the American system is based on, is thou shalt not. That's exactly As right. a general rule. But in Roman law, there's still a ton of, I mean, as far as the actual laws, there's still a ton of thou shalt nots. Sure. It's not to say that, you know, everything is subjective, because it's not. No, not at all. But the idea behind that of being, here's the ideal. Uh, and so you see that play out in other places in Europe. Not so much here, obviously, yeah, but in Europe. Because we took from a different system. We took different from a different philosophy. System. So while we don't owe a direct debt to Rome for law, but Roman law is carried forward in the church. Absolutely. Yes, it uses that, that becomes, same system. Yeah, the church becomes, in addition to Latin, that also becomes that that mechanism, that the motor, the vehicle mm-hmm. that brings Roman concepts forward. Correct. Um, to, to touch on another one that we talked about a little bit in show prep is, again, the scholasticism, learning. Mm-hmm. Um, our whole concept of what you study to learn 
um, our, our whole concept of how history is, that history is worth writing down, mm-hmm. comes from Roman historians. Absolutely. Uh, Rome is really the first society that's really doing that or making an attempt at real history. Um, you know, anybody that reads Roman history will tell you it's it brings in gossip and has a political point of view. Um, everybody from Livy to Seneca to all of them all have something they're trying to prove, mm-hmm. but it is really the first time anyone even attempts to write down real history. Yeah. And, and our, our, our ideas about history and learning come from Rome. I mean, yeah, it's about the details. They want the details. They don't really care uh, to, to forget them, whereas other histories that you find in other cultures, it's only about making those in power look good sometimes. Well, it's there's, a, there's a little of that. It's about explaining things in myth. I mean, you know, the Greeks have myth. Yeah. But that's not real history. You know, the Romans have that as well. Yes, they do. But then they have attempts at genuine history. So I, I think the two things that, that uh, and maybe these can be related together, but um, one last thing on the, on the law thing. The most essential thing is not so much the philosophy behind it, but the fact that from the very beginning of the Republic, remember we talked about that, the, they put on display the laws that were written to protect citizens. That yeah. is the most important thing that we pull forward from Roman law more than anything else. That's right. And that mm-hmm. comes from the Republic period. And that comes from the Republic. That is so important. That lasts. And I think that may be tied to what makes the, them writing things down so important. Because it's not that necessarily others didn't think about what has gone before but either accidentally or on purpose they've realized that they have created something that needs to be remembered mm-hmm. and that interesting is again this is you know supposition on my part to, to agree but I think there's something to that because if you're going to preserve that rights of citizenship thing through the various parts from not having it in the early kingdom to enshrining it in the republic to at least giving it lip service and still having some rights in the empire that's important so i think that is kind of tied into the the history and that because they are so long lived you know rome in the west is about a 1200 year enterprise give or take a little mm-hmm. so they've got a sense of history and it's all centered in rome although not always, because, you know, the, the actual capital does, uh, uh, I forget where it was we talked about. Uh, Ravenna. Ravenna, thank you. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the imperial know, court moves to Ravenna. Right. And so, but Rome itself is still important because it's it's Rome. And these things are things, they do remember this. They do have their own sense of history. I think maybe, aside from the Egyptians, might be the first culture that has that same kind of sense of history Beyond the importance of the current ruler and his own dynastic importance. Right. That's unique to them. Interesting. Very interesting. You're right. Usually history is used as a mechanism for propping up that current ruler. Right. Rome, I think you, it's very interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but it's synthesizing these two things. You, you're not just propping up the current emperor with that history. You're also maintaining that tie 
to the source of those laws. Right. The system of government itself is what's important, at least in the in the Republic it certainly was, and in the Imperial period as well. Because well, the structures it, from the Republic last into the into the oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's Empire. Not, you know, the Senate while for us most of us, you know, we think of the Senate, we think of, you know, the House and, and the Senate makes up the Congress in the US. We don't necessarily put a whole lot of stock in, into those two bodies nowadays, but I think the Senate carried on a much bigger sense, uh, you know, a much bigger importance to Rome, and that was that they vehicle mm-hmm. for both the history and the the, the law, well, the it, rights. It allowed something unique in history for the first time. Citizenship and rights were defined. We, it is an enormous step forward. That hadn't really been done before. Nobody cared before. Nobody had the power to make it happen. It was whoever had the might had the right. And this was something different. I think citizenship, the way we think of it, is inseparable from rights. Absolutely. That's a Roman uh, idea. Because the Greeks would have had, you know, you are, a, you are an Athenian. Mm-hmm. You know, because for them it's going to be more tied to the city-states. But for Rome, it was it was tied to a much larger entity, not just the city, but the lands that have become part of the empire or the republic. They simply took it to its logical progression. Right, because... What is being a citizen without having some type of right and responsibility to go with it? It's meaningless. That's right. And they were big on responsibility, too. I mean, compulsory military service and all that. The cursus honorum itself was nothing but that. Mm -hmm. You're expected to go into politics if you are one of those families. You're expected to do your time in all of these areas. Again, we're talking about the ideals because obviously at various points during the history of Rome, a lot of this is corrupted. Oh, yeah. And there's corruption yeah. going on. Yeah, anytime there's a I don't dictatorship. Want to make, right. Yeah. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, this is some holy ideal that was so great and good. Yeah, I mean. But it is the ideal yeah. we're talking right. about. Right. By the time you get 100 years into the empire, yes, the consulships mean nothing. Um, they're just political favors to be given out. But, yes, that idea of noblesse oblige, mm-hmm. that if you are capable of serving the state in some capacity, you, you do that. That's right. You do that. That is. You're right. It's a very Roman idea that does carry forward yeah. to us. That's another one. And it's not just the state, because it really is the people. Too. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah, SPQR, Senatus Populus Que Romanum. I mean, it's the Senate and people of Rome. Right. It's both, and that's that's also unique. You know, yeah. Because we're mean, still before the time we are where we think of a state. Correct. Uh, that that is definitely post-Roman. Right. Because once you become imperial, it's a different animal. Well, even the Republic, it's just, you know, we just would not have thought of things that way. I think it's only until we have competing attempts at having, recreating that empire, whether it be the, the Franks become France, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, mm-hmm. all of these things, um, where the entities that Rome has given birth to by its death those are where we really get that idea of states because they are now competing with each other to recapture that glory of Rome. I'll give you an example from one of my favorite movies, Spartacus with Kirk Douglas in 1960 and Laurence Olivier. Laurence Olivier plays Crassus in there. That's right. And he talks with uh, Tony Curtis, who's playing the slave Antoninus, and he says, Rome is an eternal thought in the mind of God. If Rome didn't exist, I'd dream of her. And he goes on for about a minute or two explaining why Rome is wonderful. And uh, and uh, it's later on, Gracchus in the movie talks about it in a different way, uh, speaking of that it's uh, Rome is like a rich widow. 
Most Romans think of her as their mother. However, Crassus dreams of marrying the old girl, to put her politely, which is kind of about how things go off the rails. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kubrick did a really good job with that movie. But I, I think it's interesting, again, that the Rome being really kind of the first example of a political entity that has some obligation to its people mm-hmm. more than the people having an obligation to the political entity. But, uh, you know, Rome has, at different periods in its history, even during the empire, has a, a grain dole, a social program. Right. Oh, yes, we talked and about I, that in the show prep. That's uh, unheard of before Rome, and yet that's very that's, much what that's they do. That's an well, idea that carries forward to not our exactly. time today. Uh, you saw, you did see that in Egypt. Um, look at what Joseph was doing. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely um, right. You know, there, because in Egypt, with living on the, the entirely off the, the, the benefits of the Nile, you know, you have to stock up for the future mm-hmm. uh, for the people. So that was a little bit out of necessity, but this is out of responsibility. That is a different thing. That's exactly what I was trying to come up with and couldn't quite get there. That's exactly it, yes. Yeah, so an idea of the state has some responsibility to its people, to its people not just not just a, a, a preparation to survive, as in Egypt on the Nile, mm-hmm. it's... It really is, okay, what are we going to do about this grain shortage? Or, or So an, an idea of that, that responsibility of, of some sort. Uh, again, you could argue about, you know, is, is that the kind of thing that a state should be doing? But the idea of a social program for the population carries forward to today. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a certain level. We can argue about what the level might be, right. where the state has responsibility towards the uh, survival and uh, thriving. The level of its is people. all you can argue. That's right. Exactly. And the the how much of responsibility. That's right. How how much that responsibility should get played out at what particular level? Mm-hmm. The responsibility is always there. That's right. Because it is immoral to not. That's because otherwise, the state owns the people. Yeah, that's you're, exactly. You're right. Nero playing the violin. Right. Yeah, yeah. If you, if so, so law, law, history, language, history, language. social programs, a, a sense that the political entity has some obligation uh, to its people, mm-hmm. and the people can claim uh, th- things from it too. They have some uh, responsibilities and some Especially benefits. legal rights. That's right. They have rights and benefits that uh, that come from that. Uh, but what else? So I think some of the ones, you know, we've got a nice long list here, and we probably won't even talk all of them. But one of the ones that strikes me near and dear is the art and architecture. Oh, yeah. You know, when we look at the architecture in Rome and we look at the architecture in Washington, D.C., and in various state capitals around this country. Absolutely. Well, county seats, too. County seats. Yeah. We see a great deal of Rome. Now, some might say, ah, the columns came from Greece. Maybe. Well, yes, I mean, they did. But, I mean, you know, where we see this stuff coming from is directly from Rome. They perfected it. We look at the capital in D.C. That has more Roman influence than it does Greek Greek influence. The rotunda, specifically, is especially modeled on the Roman Senate. Now, granted, nobody actually meets in that room anymore. Uh, because we now have the two wings that were added lately. Most people don't even realize that. Mm-hmm. The two wings that we see in the Capitol are uh, 
well, Civil War era editions. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, the dome is more Civil War era editions, but the, the, the two wings are not long before that. So that rotunda was a central meeting place originally, just like uh, Senate the Senate would have been. Right. The very word rotunda comes from that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, we want to talk about language and how many Roman words. Oh, we we yes. couldn't possibly come up with all of them. So, they're, they're everywhere. You know, even the, 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 the statues that you see in Rome, they are so much more sophisticated than what you saw in other places. I mean, they are much more lifelike than what you saw in Egypt, right? You know, you see musculature. I mean, it's not Michelangelo lifelike, but you see much more realism in the style of, uh, of sculpture. And sculpture would have been far more important than the, than the paintings, the frescoes, because uh, early frescoes, that's where, where it starts is in Rome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those were a lot more cartoonish, very mm -hmm. flat, uh, but still very sophisticated. Often sexually oriented. Too. Often sexually oriented. Uh, mosaics. You know, this is something that people still do today. Sure. They're still discovering. And they're still discovering. Yes. And go, wow, these are not what we expected. Uh, that's very much, yeah, that uh, art as something accessible to a person owning a home. Mm -hmm. That's a Roman concept. Well, you know, public bathing is also a Roman concept too. That's kind of what I'm glad we don't carry forward a lot. Yeah. Well, the fact that the it idea depends of a, on the company. Well, <laughs> the idea of a swimming pool—that's a Roman idea. That's nobody. We wouldn't. We wouldn't have thought to do that if it weren't for the. Well, fact that, that, that's a very good point because before Rome, nobody would have bothered putting together a bunch of good, clean water someplace for a bunch of dirty bodies to climb in. Well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, the reason we have a swimming pool is because Rome believed in you know public hygiene. In many ways. I mean, the aqueduct was part of that. Yeah, you know, we don't use a swimming pool to bathe, but, I mean, it's an outgrowth, it's an outgrowth of, of that. It. That's of right. bath, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what else do we have? The calendar. Oh, the calendar, yes. that That's almost as obvious as the roads. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Exactly. And, yeah, and, the, uh, and the alphabet and all that stuff. Although we don't use the Roman numeral system. And I Thank think God. And I think we're all grateful for that. Yes. yes. Thank you for the Arabic numerals for that. Makes a higher mathematics possible. But when it comes to the calendar, it's a big deal. It I mean, is. It, granted, you've got two versions of it. You've got the Julian calendar that Caesar himself put together, and then the Gregorian adjustments that were put on it by Gregory the Great. But ultimately, the calendar that we all agree on today, which works, by the way, yeah, is Roman. Is, is Roman. And, they were, and, and you think about that. They were able to accurately plot it where our years and our seasons always match. The way they're supposed to. The way to. they're supposed to. That's right. They've, they've successfully understood the way that Earth revolves, even though they probably could not have articulated that language. But they figured out the way things work. It has to work this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, calendar is a major thing when you think about it, uh, because other than by the weather changing, mm -hmm. which can fool you, yes, you know, you how are you going to know when to plant your crops? Other than by knowing there are 365 days a year, Industry. except this year when there are 366. Right. You know, agriculture thrives, and therefore your people thrive because they're fed on a consistent basis. Uh, the, the, we cannot underestimate the value of having a proper calendar. And it also gives you a sense of history. Because all that history you're talking about, that only makes sense in the presence of a calendar. So you yes. can go backwards or forwards we and no accurately longer, track things. We no longer measure time 
by the number of years a monarch reigns. That's right. <laughs> the calendar is truly universal now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And he fits within that. And he fits within that, yes. Because before, that's why we don't have a truly accurate date with for the birth of Christ. Huh. You know, we the year we use now we think is anywhere between four and six years wrong. Because we think the birth of Christ actually happened somewhere between four and six years BC. Before the birth of Christ. Yeah. <laughs> because the it's calendar like, Wait a minute. The calendar was the calendar was established <laughs> before we knew how to figure that out. Well, and because of the, very, the accurately. Very well, accurate. and not so much that as so much as nailing down exactly when that was based on the descriptions that we had in the the, right. the gospels uh, was a little bit problematic because we didn't have that universal we're in year 372 it was 371 last year you know we don't have that consistent mm-hmm. numbering because if we did that would have been mentioned in the gospels exactly yeah they would have used that uh so but yeah calendars are it's it's probably one of, if not the most important thing to get out of them, uh, aside from, uh, you know, it's probably the most practical thing. Yeah. Because of the far-ranging effects. Without that, we wouldn't have, you know, what well, used to be paper planners, but, you know, now we've got apps on our phones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're, they're all working off the same system. You know, they're all, all working off the they, same they system. They have to. And in a global economy, that's that's even more essential. Uh, so the Roman legacy to the modern world is pretty substantial. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's, we haven't it's even language, it's law, mm-hmm. it's political entities, it's bureaucracy, mm-hmm. the importance of communication, the bloody calendar, mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. One thing that we didn't talk about though that I think is key because this really kind of under- gives us to understand the Roman culture itself and why it was worth saving and bringing forward is Rome for all the bad press that it gets for its uh, persecutions of the Christians and, and others among that time, the Jews and others, really was based on assimilation and tolerance. That's one of the reasons it survived and thrived as long as it did, because it would expand itself. We talked about this a little bit. It would expand itself into other areas, and it would bring its culture with them, but it would also assimilate the good things from the local cultures <clears throat> and create a new normal from that. And sometimes those things would even flow back to Rome itself and change them. So you're saying that Rome was multicultural? Yeah. Well, <laughs> That's the, a very loaded term. I understand that, uh, but you're exactly right. But well, yes, it was multicultural in the, probably the best expression. Exactly. Because of what you just said. Right. The assimilation, it wasn't one culture overtaking another. Nope. It was the two merging and the best things from both come out the other side. Uh, yes. Most of the time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can say that because looking back, it may or may not have been fully true. But that's the goal. Again, that's the ideal. You shoot that's, for the ideal. You're not right. always going to hit it. Right. But that's the ideal. It's that great melting pot with that stew in it we right. talked about right. before. Because those ideas that were worthy, that had the traction, they were continued. They were just adapted and the persecutions that happened for the Jews and the uh, the Christians they happened because they did not want to assimilate mm-hmm. that's right yeah that's why that, that was they're, the biggest they're rejecting thing yeah they're rejecting being absorbed into yeah the well, current well they they didn't mind cer- they didn't mind getting certainly the citizenship or the benefits but they refused to give up certain things to get that specifically so their religious religion which is a big deal. Rome usually was tolerant of that, it, but not always. You know, well, and some yeah. of that also falls upon 
the shoulders of those currently in power. I mean, Caligula and Nero, come on. You're, you're talking about serious loons here. Uh, and goodness knows Roman, Rome had its share of wild, terrible emperors. It's usually, you know, when you have good government, that's not usually happening much. Now, there are exceptions. Vespasian's a good, a good example of that because he's the one that uh, destroys uh, Jerusalem uh, under that. that. That's a longer story that we have. That wasn't to just about... Correct. There's more, a lot yeah, to that, that. that. Yeah, that's a much bigger issue. Yeah. You know, one other structure that maybe we, we decry a great deal in our modern world that pulls forward from Rome, but it's pretty necessary, really, is the idea of a bureaucracy, of, of people to carry out what the government needs to be doing. Administrative functions. I mean, yeah. that's maybe a, a, a kinder way of putting it. They believed in that. Uh, they, well, you can't run an empire their size successfully without some level of that. Well, you you can't do it beyond one generation. That's right. Which is why so many kingdoms rose and fell. Right. Because when you look at post-Rome in the West, there is no bureaucracy. That's right. There's no system Everything, that survives. There is, right. Generation Everything is personal power of the monarch or whoever the, the warlord, whatever term you want to right. use. And they're just saying, all right, I want you to go do this. I want you to go do this. Oh, I don't like what you're wearing. Off with your head. And you send somebody else to do it. That's why feudalism sucks so bad, because it was vulnerable to all that. Uh, and it's, it's the ultimate decentralization, but it terribly... It was every time there's a change like that, you know, the common people fear for their lives because then it's anarchy. Potentially, Actually, I would say it's the ultimate centralization because all the power is centralized in one place, the the monarch. Yes, but it's decentralized to the nobles and from there to the serfs and all that. So it's kind of got that level of it's it's meant to be a bureaucracy, but there's no administrative function. It's usually it's usually almost ownership. It's almost slavery. Well, yeah, feudalism is basically. Um and you're right, wherever there was a ruler attempting to be effective, or where there wasn't an effective ruler, there's bureaucracy. That's right. There's people carrying out the work mm -hmm. that needs to be done for that government to thrive. Mm -hmm. And where that's absent, you're right. Absolutely right, Robert. It's personal power. Sure. It, it goes it, back to that point. Yeah. And, and when then that when, point breaks, it falls apart. Yeah, exactly. When that power is gone then there's no one carrying out the work of government, whatever that work is, whether it's tax collection yeah. or justice or whatever. Right. The very gone. word of government is a, it's not a modern invention because obviously there was government in Rome. Mm -hmm. There was government in Greece. There's government in, but government, the way we think of it today, took a long hiatus yeah. during what we would call either the dark or the middle ages, mm -hmm. however you want to put it. Because all of that power, or all of that, all of those functions were not organized, right? For any, and it's when when the, the world starts to emerge from that darkness is when you start to see these political entities reinstitute mm -hmm. some form of bureaucracy. Which, yeah, which is based in law. Yeah, ultimately, that's because yeah. Rome has law. That's you know, the bureaucracy stems from the law. When law itself is irrelevant, it's only personal power, then it's completely changeable. Yeah, yeah the law charges the government it's, with responsibility. Right. It's what lasts between generations. Yeah, something has to carry that forward. So when you start to see successful 
for example, English monarchies, That's right. what are they doing? Well, they have a bureaucracy. They have justices of the peace, That's right. what we would call them today, out in the world. Constabularies. Yeah, constabularies, and, and they are doing the work of the king. That's right, in his name. Yeah. And, and a lot they, of that started with the Magna Carta and moved forward. And by the time and, Exactly. By the time Henry VIII is in place, it's in full form. Oh, yeah, it was a very big deal. We talked about this with Tom Moore, the Richard right? III and, and the Tudors. Why the Tudors succeed? Well, not just because they made Richard look bad, but they were putting those administrative structures That's right. that were part of the Wars of the Roses back to full flourish. Richard right. was trying that. Uh, his brother Edward was trying that before him, and the Tudors took off with it. Right. And, and that stabilized the English monarchy and made eventually England the premier kingdom of the world. Of the world, yeah. uh, which was always looking to model itself on the Roman Empire. They saw that as successful. That's one of the another one of the legacies is all those who succeed at supreme executive power to steal from Monty Python again. Uh, they look back to Rome for their ideas. They recognize they succeeded at it. Anytime, from what we have seen so far in history, that a people try to govern themselves or at least have some kind of power that uh, they have, we look back to Rome, mm -hmm. whether it's the United States, whether it's the French republics, or even Napoleon, who, uh, mm -hmm. you know. He, ironically, yeah. Yes, ironically, because he took Roman terms. You know, mm -hmm. He was the consul. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and again, he wanted to recreate that Holy yeah. Roman Empire. Because yeah. he saw it had value. He saw it worked. Well, and, and, and it, 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 it's a way to, if you can institutionalize your authority, your authority is a lot safer. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the real secret of the longevity of Rome. They managed to institutionalize what it meant to be a Roman. Well, the entire concept of the institution was them. That was their idea. They, they institutionalized power. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. They institutionalized power, and again... That, that's so striking when you see that carried forward that, all right, the power of the Tudor dynasty moves from Henry VII to Henry VIII to Edward to Mary to Elizabeth and on, not from just their personal magnetism, mm -hmm. but because right. they've institutionalized the power of the state mm -hmm. in such a way that recognizes the government has work to do. Right. Succession becomes a, a de facto non-issue in many ways. They still they still cry for it. They still look for it. But ultimately... It's ironic considering the succession issues that the empire that's had. Why, yeah, that's why I brought it up. Because yeah. they, they didn't. They, but, but yet, it, they still survived and thrived, even through some of the worst of all emperors. The, um, that institutionalizing, what that does, what makes them different... And I don't know how much aware of this they would have been or those that later. But looking back, I think what makes uh, everything different is that rather than the leader of your society, whether it be a kingdom or whatever, whether you are uh, a pharaoh in Egypt or you are uh, Cyrus in Persia, doesn't matter. Those essentially have the same power and authority as an emperor mm -hmm. or as a king. Yeah. The names are different, but what the Romans did was they turned that leadership position into an office through dictators. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. That is what makes it different, I think, and maybe that's 
part of that genius that they stumbled onto. Uh, maybe all of this is yeah. one big accident. <laughs> but institutionalizing the leadership into an office is a huge deal. That's right. I think you're right. I think that part might be an accident. But when you combine that with the recognition that the government has an obligation yes. to do certain jobs, that I think they did know. Yes. Right. When you combine those two things, then you get a very Roman and hopefully 21st century concept of good government. Yeah. Right. And then Rome's legacy. When you look at when Rome fell, when the church stepped in uh, in the city, in the places where it was strong, which is granted most of uh, society at the time, it is definitely going to take on some of those structures. Okay. It takes on some of those... Uh, he, <laughs> Martin was just giving us the time time call there, so <laughs> I can't believe we've, we've already talked 40 minutes. That's really good. Um, but by by those structures existing, it was easy for easier for the church to step in mm -hmm. and be that caretaker of civilization until the rest of what was Rome could get reorganized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because whether you see it in the monasteries spread throughout of you know the Franks and the German Germanies and wherever else. The structures, by being there, helped ensure that the dark times didn't last as long. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because there definitely were dark times. Mm. I just don't think they lasted as long as most people think. Right. And I think that's partly because of this. That's right. The church continued on in a system that was proven to work. Yes. They, they basically they took on a lot of the structures. Now, they were already doing that because it's a good model. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as yeah, you pointed out. Knew. and. Well, yes. but it worked. But it worked. Yeah. And, you know, as you pointed out, the very word that we use uh, to divide up the church, diocese, comes from Rome. It's a Roman administrative division. Right. Yeah. So, basically, I think I mentioned this in the show prep, too, is our view of the world is largely through a Roman prism, especially when we talk about the obligations government has, mm -hmm. uh, how governments can be structured. Mm -hmm. um, or and should just, be. Yeah, Should and be, just yeah. what a functioning society looks like is all colored by our perception of Rome. You you have you have it surrounded, sir. That's exactly right. It is, and I'll even go a step further. How we look at the rest of the world is filtered through that that image because ah, look mm -hmm. at how we view the Middle East. Even though our current troubles in the Middle East are with a group of people who's religion and system of organization didn't exist until 200-ish years, two, uh, almost 200 years, 200 years after the fall of Rome in the West. Yeah, yeah. around 700 or so. Yeah, six, actually yeah. mid-sixes. Yeah. Uh, so that is a major thing because just like the Persians dealing with uh, the uh, well, the Greeks, Alexander, right. mm -hmm. and then the Persians dealing with the Romans. Uh, now we have, uh, uh, you know, the the troubles we have in the Middle East. There seems to very much be a, a, you know, what we call the East, and us being the West. This is still very much. Maybe it's geographic. I don't know, but we still have that same kind of it's prism. A, it's a Roman. It's competing systems. Division. Right, but it's different systems now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we still look at it in that. 
East versus West kind of a way, even if they didn't use those same terms. But Rome saw Persia as that competitor. Yes. That that other empire. Which grew philosophically from very different roots. So yes. it thinks very differently. Yeah. So it's more than just geography or culture or ethnicity. It's a philosophical opposition of each other when it comes to ways of government and things like that. Yeah, but I think that would probably going to be true of any other because uh, you look at the conflicts with oh, with, sure. with Carthage, with uh, Egypt, uh, until they manage to f- conquer those, sure. you still have a different philosophical, uh, and probably for most conflicts, yeah, but the philosophical differences are going to be, yeah, and how things are organized, your system, there's going to be differences yeah. there. Look at the U.S. versus uh, Soviet Russia or communist Chinese. You know, these are there are major philosophical differences. I think if the philosophical differences are not there then there's very much a smaller chance of war and conflict. Hitler had a different philosophical basis mm. for how he ran Germany. That was going to bring him into conflict with everybody else. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. When you look at Europe today, it has basically the same philosophical underpinnings. That's why Europe has been at peace. You all right there, Francis? He's all right. For 60 years. And it would be nearly unthinkable for a war in Europe. Yeah, you know, yeah. We, it's unless it came from the east. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. it, yeah. We we, we uh, just to wrap up a little bit, but we we look at all those administrative structures and how a society should be structured in our in our uh, political entities through that Roman prism, mm-hmm. so, whether we realize it or not. Yep. So, Francis, next week. Next episode, what do we got? We're going back uh, to our uh, Code of Honor episode, but we're going to do it a little differently this time. We're going to start and stay with one phrase. Excellent. That uh, Excellent. that you're going to captain that. I'm going to captain that, and we, we're just, you have to tune in next week to find out what that because it's a biggie. That very special Code of Honor is going to be all about. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us, and please... Remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel. Yeah.